0: is an odyssey original this is knx in depth i'm rob archer
1: and i'm Elsa Vermonen for charles feldman today descendants of slaves could soon find themselves instant millionaires if they live here in california will go in depth
0: and can someone who is not white become a white supremacist will the answer may or may not surprise you And you can really fight giant, rich, powerful corporations and win. We'll talk to a lawyer who says yes, and he's done it.
1: He absolutely has. But we are going to start with the California reparations. With us is State Senator Stephen Bradford, a Democrat from Gardena, and... Stephen, you're also a member of the reparations task force. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. So the the task force got uh, approved its recommendations at a meeting over the weekend after hearing from speakers uh, on the issue. But ultimately, any final decisions on reparations or even an apology is going to be up to the governor and Sacramento lawmakers. How likely is it that this is going to happen?
2: I hope it's very likely. I mean, here's an opportunity for California, especially our elected officials, to really show what we're made of and stand in solidarity and in and, and real defiance to the rest of the country who wants to continue to put their head in the sand when it comes to reparations. California has led on so many issues from the environment to technology, and you name it. So here's an opportunity to show what Uh, reparations look like. And I'm hoping my colleagues as well uh, as the governor will uh, stand in solidarity and approve that which is recommended in this final report.
0: Is there a move underfoot to make reparations a federal issue? And and are you also behind the idea of pushing for that, that reparations should come from the, the national government level?
2: Without a doubt, that was a commitment that was made to uh, freed slaves uh, 160 years ago, so I think there is an obligation uh, for the federal government to live up to that. It was in place until the assassination of uh, Abraham Lincoln, and then uh, uh, putting in place Jim Crow laws to further segreg- segregate this country uh, and divide blacks and whites from one another. So it is something that was promised, and it's something that it's owed, and it's something that the federal government should embrace as well.
1: Well, the legislature here in California is in a pretty tough spot then. If it doesn't approve, lawmakers could be accused of racism and unfairness. If they do approve, you know, they could face scrutiny for um earmarking dollars for reparations when we have big issues facing us here in california especially in la the mayor has already outlined in her budget she intends to seek billions of dollars for our homelessness situation and money to hire more uh, police officers and law enforcement where would that money come from and and what position does it put the legislature in
2: I I truly believe where there's a will, there's a way. We have found ways to finance anything that we've saw fit in California for the last 100 or plus years. Uh, If we just took 0.5%, just 0.5% of a $300 billion uh, budget, annual budget, and just put it in an annuity, that's $1.5 billion a year that we could clearly stand up this program and have ongoing uh, funding for a a reparations, uh, to provide reparations, I should say. I want to get away from people envisioning cash payments, because reparations is far more than that. You got to understand what was promised was 40 acres and a a mural. It wasn't money, you know, 160 years ago, so we should quit framing this as it has to be dollars alone in order for folks to be made whole, but there's a will. We have found ways to fund a train to nowhere. We're now $100 billion overrun on high-speed rail, and no one's asking where that money's coming from. So we found, we will find money to fund that. We'll find money to fu- uh, fund reparations if we're so committed to it.
0: All right. Thank you so much. State Senator Stephen Bradford, Democrat from Gardena, also a member of the Reparations Task Force.
1: Also, uh, we are going to tackle the issue of Title 42 right now. The Biden administration is getting ready to end it, which was an emergency COVID health rule that was used to stop migrants from crossing into the U.S. from Mexico. Uh, Border cities are getting ready for this potential arrival of tens of thousands of migrants after this. Ilse Mendez is the programming director for Laredo Immigrant Alliance in Texas. Thank you so much for being with us on this issue. So, uh, this uh, where everyone is bracing for Thursday and the Border Patrol and the state's leaders have made it very clear that they don't have the resources or the funds to process the tens of thousands of people that are going to be showing up at the border. How is this going to be handled?
3: So right now, um, from what we can see, we we already have folks that are um, coming into border cities. Um, yeah, Title Forty Two is not um, a solution, and keeping it in place um, is just not deterring folks to continue to seek asylum. Um, on our end, we're just trying to uh, help our local community. Um, in Laredo, uh, we're we're seeing folks really don't want to stay in Laredo; they're moving up uh, further to different states. Um, but but. Um, having Title 42 has really just um, affected local resources more than anything. Um, and these having Title 42 in place is just um, leaving folks with it's not a deterrent, it's just leaving folks having to find other ways uh, to uh, cross the border and leaving them without an option to be able to. to um, just status or uh, apply for asylum. It's just not the solution.
0: Yeah. And speaking of solutions, those are awfully hard to come by these days because this is a problem that both sides, uh, no matter which side of the ideological fence you're on or the wall, so to speak, uh, you know, this is a problem. Uh, on the one hand, you've got one side that says, well, the answer is to build a wall. And uh, well, we, we do have walls. Uh, they don't always work. because People find a way around them, and desperate people will find ways around any kind of barrier you put up. So the other issue uh, becomes what can we do, uh, barring uh, building bigger and bigger walls— to uh, stop this problem from happening in the first place. Now, granted, you're not going to stop all immigration. There are people living in desperate situations, and they see America as the shining city on a hill. They want to come here because they're going to find a better life or at least a better life than what they're leaving behind. But without uh, fixing the problem at home, we're not going to see a stop to this influx of people. What really can we do about this?
3: Um, That's up to the representatives and uh, leaders of our um, up in Congress uh, to to find that solution. It's uh, there's a lot of money that's being wasted on continuing to militarize our border um, and continuing. And it's not deterring people. Um, uh, And and uh, we we just uh, shared a documentary, not the two days ago here locally, on a family um, and their journey through, um, you know, coming through a caravan and what their experience and and I got to sit down with folks, um, really that talked about their experience, you know, going through the jungle and uh, seeing like the different body parts of people and um, it's just horrendous stories, right? It's so it's not something easy that people decide uh, to just <laughs> come and, and go through all these this horrible experience. Uh, to come and get here. But uh, like you mentioned, that desperation, it it really does live in, in a lot of folks. And Title 42, the only thing that it's doing, it's uh, creating a, a barrier that's just uh, magnifying that issue. And I, I want to get into the
1: details of that, because when Title 42 was invoked, by the CDC, it was because of the COVID pandemic to keep people out for the health and well-being of people in our country. But it gave Border Patrol agents the authority to expel migrants to their home country or whatever last country they were in. But by overriding that immigration law, did that make Title 42 worse? I mean, were, were these people that kept trying to get in over and over and over again illegally? Was any of that documented? Would any of that have made any kind of impact on their future cases to try to claim asylum or anything that they could legally claim to be able to get uh, a temporary status here in the U.S.? Why was Title 42 such a bad um, uh, use of of a, of a law? And, and how did it make this illegal immigration problem worse?
3: Um, I mean, we've heard... A lot of desperate cases of people because of uh, Title Forty Two, because of Operation Lone Star, um, that are having trouble being able to adjust their status, or you know, some border patrol uh, walk people through um, to through certain parts of, um, uh, you know, land and and uh, tag them with trespassing and. Um, it's it's just not a good solution what's happening right now. And, and it's not helpful to our communities. It's just creating further division. We just saw our sister community in Brownsville um, lost seven lives, seven migrant lives. Um, and, and it's just, you know, uh, sharing that continued narrative, negative narrative about, immigrants about why they come here the using the words invasion and um it it's not right and mm-hmm. um as a border organization we, we're here to help our community and we're here to um just kind of it, support uh these folks that are really in, in desperate situations okay. just trying to
0: right thank survive. you thank you so much i uh mendez uh with Le- uh, laredo immigrant alliance in texas You're listening to KX In-Depth with Elton And today for Charles Feldman, I'm Rob Archer.
1: Coming up, we're going to talk to an attorney who says we can fight corporate greed and win the David and Goliath situation. He'll mm. explain how he did it and how we can do it too.
0: Uh, right now, though, the Biden administration working on some new regulations that would require airlines to compensate passengers. Give us her money. If they're stuck because of something within the airline's control. Now, Brett Snyder is author of the Cranky Flyer blog and director of the Cranky Concierge Air Travel Service. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So uh, what kind of compensation are we talking about here? Or is it the usual stuff like, hey, I had to buy a hotel room, so uh, give me the money for that?
4: Well, that is part of it. Uh, So what they are saying is that it would include things like meals and hotels and ground transportation to and from the hotel if you get stuck overnight, for example. Uh, But there's also another piece of this, which is very vague at this point in time, and it just says compensation for passengers when there is a controllable airline cancellation or significant delay. So that could, could actually be cash.
1: Okay, so um, what qualifies then as uh, uh, compensatory damage? I guess you could say what what situation would get a family the money they need for food and, and shelter and all that instead of having the kids all sprawled out at the airport waiting for the thing to, you know, the flight to get fixed?
4: Well, th- this is where I think this release is a little bit misleading, what the government's saying, because most airlines today already provide a hotel and uh, meals if they delay you overnight. Uh, and it's a controllable delay, as they call it. Uh, so really, the big difference here is that it would just be potentially additional cash payouts, maybe similar to what you see in the European Union has has a program like that. But we don't really know for sure yet. Uh, but the issue is that it has to be a controllable delay or cancellation, which means it's something within the airline's control and not weather, not air traffic control, all, the, all those types of things. So uh, it, it's a little squishy.
0: Uh, is there any kind of compensation uh, coming for people who get bumped from flights because of overbooking other than uh, we'll get you on another flight somewhere?
4: That's not addressed in this, but there already is significant compensation if you're involuntarily denied boarding. Uh, most airlines now have gotten pretty good at soliciting volunteers and really increasing the amounts that they offer to people in terms of vouchers, future travel uh, for people who volunteer. So, uh, you know, that, but that's not something that's covered in, in this particular rulemaking.
1: You know, going back to the list of things that could qualify, you say there there are some amounts that people can get. Um, When they're already stranded right now. But the Biden administration has made it clear that that it doesn't feel it's nearly enough for people who get stranded, uh, especially for people who are stranded for multiple days at a time. And especially since the airline industry and the government has predicted that this summer travel season is going to be pretty rough shortage of pilots and computer issues and upgrades not there. I mean, at what point does it get cut off to people? Um, And at what point can the airlines say, well, you know, this is weather or this is something that's not in our control?
4: Uh, Sure. Well, so first of all, let's hope that this summer actually isn't that bad. (laughs) Hopefully it's better than last summer. Um, There have actually been several steps taken by airlines and the government to try and make it better, but you never know where where a thunderstorm may sit on top of an airport for a while. Uh, But all that being said, you know, th- this is still a-, a question that remains to be seen. This is just right now the government saying we're going to be pushing this forward, but it doesn't have all the details. It'll go into a lengthy process of a rulemaking to determine, uh, you know, get feedback from the public and from the industry and then eventually maybe turn it into an actual rule. This certainly wouldn't have an impact for this summer, what they're talking about now.
0: Uh, very quickly, because we're just about out of time. Uh, what about from the airlines perspective? Perspective, and I'm thinking of say uh, Southwest Airlines, where they have a major computer foul up, and it delays flights all over the country. And it turns out that the that the computer malfunction was their fault because somebody did something wrong. Would they be able to afford if they're already kind of in between a rock and a hard place to pay all these passengers all this compensation?
4: An airline like Southwest could afford that, and and it really did uh, you know dig in deep this time around uh, in December when they had the the last major meltdown that they had uh, it was more in the terms of frequent flyer miles instead of straight cash but but they could certainly do that you could imagine that this could put more pressure uh, on maybe a smaller carrier that doesn't have the same type of resources uh, but that's something that I'm sure that they'll discuss
0: in detail when they get through the rulemaking process all right thanks so much that is uh, Brett Snyder author of the cranky flyer blog and director of the cranky concierge air travel service.
1: You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman.
0: Investigators are looking into whether the mass shooter who killed eight people at a mall near Dallas over the weekend had an interest in white supremacy.
1: And Rob, what makes that especially interesting is the shooter was Latino. Peter Simi is a sociology professor at Chapman University and co-author of the book American Swastika, Inside the White Power Movement's hidden spaces of hate. Thanks for being with us today, Peter. So I've seen the debate go back and forth, rage on on social media by people who are questioning how can someone who is not white be a white supremacist? Can you explain that?
5: Well, yeah, thanks for having me, first of all, and uh, I've seen some of that as well. Um, You know, first of all, I think it's important to point out that racial and ethnic identity is very complicated. Um, It's multidimensional. dimensional it it involves how a person sees themselves, how others see them, and how they see others seeing them. So there's three, at least three different aspects to it. Sometimes those line up, and sometimes they don't. Um, in, in the case of Latinos, um, there is some percentage, uh, in some cases as high as um, more than you know, fifty eight percent by Pew study in two thousand and one, that find um, individuals identify as white. So. Um, you know that 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 you know that percentage may be high, but but what what is very clear is that some percentage certainly of Latinos do see themselves as white. So, uh, the idea of a person who's Latino being a white supremacist just based on that fact alone is actually not all that surprising.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, because, you know, uh, the idea behind white supremacy and fascism, uh, there are a couple of different strains here, and it gets complicated because you've got the true believers who believe in the ideology, and then you've got the people who, yeah, they believe in the ideology, but it's more a means to an end, and the end is power. And fascism, they see, is a is a great way to get, to get to the reins of power. But also uh, in that, as you say, people can identify as white when other people might not identify them that way. But the whole idea is that for some of the white supremacist movement, doesn't matter what you are so long as we can get you to hate this other group of people. In this case, it appears from what we think are this person's uh, postings that it was against black people and Jewish people.
5: Right. Yeah, no, I think you're characterization of the from the perspective of white supremacists is exactly spot on and keep in mind i think sometimes people have the idea that white supremacists i mean in many respects they do have a very fixed way of seeing the world but it's actually a, a little bit more diverse than people sometimes recognize and their way of seeing things can be somewhat more fluid or dynamic than is sometimes acknowledged and You know, even what they consider to be white, I mean, in some ways it's it's black and white, uh, quite literally, but in other ways it's not. And so, for instance, they don't consider Jewish people to be white. But even many people who most would say are white, they wouldn't consider to be white because, for instance, they have this idea of what's called a a race traitor. So you can be white, but you basically disqualified your whiteness because you – you know, agree with um, multiculturalism or you are involved in interracial relationships, uh, various things that could potentially disqualify a person. So it is very complicated. It is very nuanced. And a lot of these discussions on social media don't seem to kind of grasp that.
1: Uh, right. I mean, even though we've seen some examples, uh, I would say with uh, some of the trials of some of the proud boys uh, for the January 6th insurrection, this uh, question came up then as well. How could somebody like Enrique Tarrio be part of the Proud Boys?
5: Yeah, uh, again, it's, you know, the, the appeal that these groups have is much more broader based than we've recognized in the past. Uh, sometimes I think we want to minimize the, the uh, potential appeal that these different ideologies have and uh, the range and breadth that they have. And, uh, and then sometimes there are just very um, odd uh, situations, for instance, historically speaking, there have been Jewish people who were uh, ident- identified themselves as Nazis. There was a case of Daniel Burroughs in the late 60s and early 70s that the Hollywood movie The Believer was loosely based on. There was a guy, Leo Felton, in the early 2000s who was on the FBI uh, Most Wanted list, a white supremacist neo-Nazi who was biracial. His father was black. His mother was white. So um, it it does get pretty messy in in many respects.
0: All right. Thank you so much for uh, speaking with us today. And that is Peter Simi, a sociology professor at Chapman University. Also, he's got a book he's the co-author of. It's called American Swastika Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate. You're listening to KNX In Death, I'm Rob Archer along with Elsa Ramon who is in for Charles Feldman today. Well, we all know that corporations are super big and super powerful and trying to fight them is sometimes a fool's errand. But it's not always true. Attorney Jeffrey Simon took on Big Pharma and won. He got Texas a nearly $2 billion settlement against Johnson & Johnson. That's going to go toward uh, opioid harm reduction. And he's uh, coming out with a brand-new book uh, this summer. It's uh, about fighting corporations. It's called Last Rights: the Fight to Save the Seventh Amendment. Thank you for joining us today.
6: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's dive into the book first. uh, The Seventh Amendment, why is there a fight to save it? And why is the Seventh Amendment, what is it and why is it in danger? The
6: Seventh Amendment is the right to trial by jury in civil cases in any controversy uh, that's more than $20. And it is in the original Bill of Rights, just as important as any other constitutional guarantee that you hold dear. It was ratified in 1792. And it is the only way in which a, a private individual can stand on equal ground with a corporate Goliath that they have a legal dispute, where you know twelve, sometimes six, depending on the nature of the case, jurors decide who's right or wrong and what should happen about it. And what's happened is, is over roughly the last twenty years, uh, in states across America primarily what I'll call red states, but certainly it includes California in some respects and others, is that powerful corporations have simply used their financial influence and power to help elect lawmakers who pass laws to favor them, take away rights to trial by jury or restrict damages no matter how severe the harm is, so that they are unaccountable in the civil justice system to the people they seriously harm or cheat. And my book is about that problem and that history and what we should do about it.
1: So taking all of that, uh, all of those resources and harnessing them and using them to be able to basically take on Goliath in this David and Goliath situation, you were able to secure uh, uh, almost $2 billion in cash for the state of Texas over the opioid crisis. Um, how is that money going to be distributed? Who gets it? Who qualifies? And where does it go?
6: Sure. So what happened is, is I, my law firm, Simon Greenstone Panettiere, uh we represent uh, over forty-five counties in the state of Texas who have been really hard hit by the opioid epidemic because not only does it take a devastating human toll, but it also creates crushing economic burden, which you know is borne by taxpayers in these local communities. And colleagues of mine who represent other counties in the state of Texas, uh, we work together in prosecuting cases against particular drug companies that were the most responsible or among the most responsible for oversupplying these addictive drugs. In other words, Providing them at levels way beyond any legitimate therapeutic use and creating a health crisis of addictions and overdoses, which is nationwide but also manifest in the state of Texas. And we were able to reach settlements with several drug companies. You mentioned Johnson Johnson, that was one of them, but there were others. And the total of it is so far, we're still going, about 1.85 billion and of that 1.85 billion that's 1.75 billion dollars in cash no less than 85% of which will be used in you know exclusively for harm reduction that is addiction uh, recovery services and social services foster uh, providing care for foster kids who are orphaned by opioid addiction among their parents uh uh, education about the health effects of opioids, both prescription and illicit. You know, especially now, um, uh, illicit fentanyl and its ubiquity in street drugs of every description, um, and all the other kinds of programs you can think of in terms of medical care, social services, and law enforcement uh, to deal with those issues. Uh, Seventy-five billion of it is specifically dedicated to providing Narcan the overdose rescue drugs to communities throughout the state
0: of Texas. All right, so uh, we call this a David and Goliath story, but it's not really... David and Goliath, when we're talking about big corporations, because in this case, Goliath is not knocked out with our little stone uh, and we don't go up and cut off his head. What happens is Goliath loses a fingernail and continues fighting because we get these big settlements. And granted, $2 billion or nearly $2 billion, that's a lot of money. And that might actually be noticed by some of these companies. But the problem is... You win this battle and you get a big settlement from a company, but they've got so much money that it's nothing to them. They factor it in and go, oh, well, you know, we'll just make up that money on the other end. So how do you win? If you win the battle, how do you win the war against the power and the wealth of these huge companies that will not learn a lesson from this? They'll just keep doing the same thing.
6: Well, the first thing I would do is encourage your audience to read Last Rights because when the book comes out in a few months, it's all about that. And, you know, the issue is that it is true that these companies have enormous resources. And it's also true that it often does not deter their conduct because they have the political influence to simply go in and change the laws for which they're held accountable. For example, the DEA busted several uh, drug companies In the years 2007 and 2009 and 2012. And rather than come into compliance with regulatory law, uh, certain uh, big companies, pharmaceutical companies, simply used their lobby power to pass a new law called the Marino Law, which became uh, enacted in, in 2016 that stripped the DEA of most of its power to stop these drug companies from oversupplying these addictive prescription narcotics. And so it is true that they have enormous financial influence to find ways to first undermine the law and then change the law if they get caught. Having said that, having said that, uh, you know, $1.85 billion is a start. And it is a start to provide care to people who are being crushed by this epidemic and need help and vanquishing the drug companies is not the goal to be fair they provide life-saving drugs of various types too so it's not as simple as good versus evil as much as it is holding them accountable for their role in having caused an enormous amount of harm in this particular sphere
0: all right thank you so much uh, attorney jeffrey simon uh, took on big pharma in one joined us today in uh, the book uh, which is coming out soon is called last rights the fight to save the seventh amendment. Well that's gonna do it for K, nice and Death today. Elsa Ramon, thank you so much for filling in for Charles. But of course. And uh, we had fun. We had so much fun. I think we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna do this again tomorrow.